I wanted to open up to you Psalm 23 today. Um, it just as a one-off message, not part of a series or anything, because uh, in working through it and just um, meditating through the psalm, it really has blessed me, and uh, <clears throat> I feel like there's just some really important things to share from this psalm as we go into this new year. So can you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23? Psalms is right in the middle, and then just find number 23. It'll be the most familiar of all the psalms. Um, I don't think I've ever preached on it before, so let's just read it through, and we'll take it from there. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When you think about the Christian life, your, your walk with God, what, I wonder what the dominant sort of um, picture or metaphor is for you of what it means to be a Christian. Because I think in the Bible, one of the clear pictures is of a journey, <clears throat> of, um, of traveling through a brief life, actually, but traveling nonetheless. And uh, one of the sort of religious words that's gathered around that is the idea of pilgrimage, that we are, in a sense, on a lifelong pilgrimage towards a deeper knowledge of God and transformation into his likeness. And this, this Psalm, Psalm 23, in many ways captures the totality of what it means, the themes, the, the big ideas that are true of us in our pilgrimage with Jesus. And... Um, it's partly there's just in the language of movement that's all the way through the Psalms, you know, that, uh, of following, of walking, of leading, of journeying. Um, but it's also true of, of the picture of the shepherd life. Um, sh- shepherds these days work differently to how they used to um, in the Middle East when this was written, when David himself, who'd been a shepherd, had experienced this. They were constantly on the move. The sheep were literally following the lead of the shepherd as he guided them from the front. He didn't drive them from behind with all the dogs yapping and stuff. He led them from the front, and they were journeying with him from hillside to hillside to valley to pasture. And so that's the picture I want you to hold in your mind, that your life is a kind of a pilgrimage, a journey, as we head into this psalm, but also use this as a springboard to head into this new year. Um, I think new year is just the most perfect opportunity, isn't it, to take stock and think about Where am I going on my journey? When I think about the trajectory my life has been on, how I've been tracking up to now, where where have I been going and where do I hope and intend to go in the year to come? I'm guessing probably all of us have been thinking about that a little bit, meditating on that these past few weeks, right? Now, here's one of the things, though. When we think about our year ahead, which is what we do at this time of year, I think we mistakenly tend to start with ourselves. We look inwards, don't we? We look at us. We think about our failings, the things we want to change. We think about the goals we have, the ambitions we have, the desires we have, the self-improvement we aspire to. And what this psalm does in terms of picturing your life as this pilgrimage, as this journey, is entirely reorients your focus so that you are not meant to be thinking about yourself particularly, but rather thinking about the living God. Thinking about his ends, his ambitions, his, the truths about him. My hope today, as you listen to what David's teaching us about this God we serve, is that it's going to completely reframe how you think about this year to come. It's one of the most important things that we can be learning about, isn't it? How we journey with God and how we put him at the center of our lives. So what I want to do is just break it down into five chunks. 
In many ways, this psalm also mirrors the Lord's Prayer. They're both kind of prayers. And I want to just show you some of those parallels as we go along, just as an aside. But I'm going to draw out five strands of um, ideas that are true of the pilgrim life and what he wants us to learn about what it means to um, experience and to journey with, with God through life. And that ought to reframe how you think about 2017. Here's the first. The Christian life is to be undergirded, built upon, infused with praise and worship. It's implicit in the entirety of the psalm that the whole thing is a a hymn, a song of worship to the living God. The language, how it begins with he, 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 he. It keeps repeating the truths about God. But for David, there's one particular way in which this is true. It's the same way, of course, how the Lord's Prayer opens. Hallowed be your name. For David, there's a particular poignancy to the way that he chooses to praise God in this psalm, in that he, he, he opens with this idea of God as, as my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, why is that, for David, a statement of praise? I think for this simple reason, that David, having experienced the shepherd life, knew the power, importance, dedication of a shepherd towards his flock. So for David to take that picture and then apply it to to the living God was to express absolute subservience and devotion and passion towards his God as the, the one person he wants to see and to follow and to be with. He knew the sacrifices of this life. But you know, also, it brings us right at the start... To the very heart of the Christian life and to the centrality of the cross, because this picture of, sh- of, of, of God being our shepherd and of us being sheep is central to God's redemption and his atonement, his, his winning of us by the, the death of Christ our shepherd. It's there in Isaiah 53. He says, All we like sheep have gone astray, we scatter. We go in our own directions on the hillsides. We go into, into dangerous places. We get ourselves lost. He says, we've turned everyone to his own way. And so the Lord has laid on him, on the shepherd, the iniquity of us all. Jesus picked up this picture when he talked about himself in um, John's Gospel, John chapter 10. He said about himself that he is the good shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He then contrasts this with other kinds of leaders and rulers. He says, he who is a hired hand, someone who's just paid, like a mercenary, to do the job, he says, is not a shepherd. He doesn't, doesn't own the sheep. And he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. So before we say anything else, I want us to fix in our hearts and our minds this worshipful perspective. That to call our God, our shepherd, is before anything else to recognize his careful passionate devotion to us and to worship him for that. The Christian life is centered around the gospel, around Jesus giving his life for us because, friend, as you go into this new year, you may have all kinds of ambitions towards improving your life, all kinds of ways in which you feel angry towards yourself or a sense of self-loathing. And the cross deals with all of that stuff. It helps us die to our our pride and our inward-looking way of life and brings us back to the truth that God loves us, that he is dedicated to us, that our welfare is his passionate concern, and that he cares more about this year to come than you do. Why do we begin then with praise? What is, why is that a, a kind of a principle of the pilgrim life of this godly spirituality? It's not because praise is a kind of a password into God's presence. I think some people think that you've got to 
you've got to begin your prayers with praise so that somehow um, you can get in and God will listen to you. And that's absolutely not the case. We come by the cross. We come by of our acceptance in Christ. It's not because it makes us somehow more worthy that when we become pr- people who praise and worship God, we somehow become more worthy and acceptable to him. It's not true. Yes, you're called to be a worshiper. Yes, you're called to be someone who adores God. But friend, it doesn't make you more worthy. Your worthiness has been given to you as a gift when Jesus imputed and gave you, infused you with his righteousness. Is that the most important thing that's true about you as you begin this year? Is that the top of your consciousness when you think about your walk with God? That I am acceptable, that I am loved, that God delights in me through Christ. We don't praise God because he's more inclined to answer our prayers. All of this is just based on a wrong way of understanding our relationship to the shepherd. We praise him because he is worthy. Because if we don't, the rocks will cry out. Because his goodness to us has flown out from the cross when Christ's veins were opened to us. We praise him because of what it does in our hearts when, like David, we get on our knees and start to say, the Lord is my shepherd. All of your fretful concerns to control your life begin to evaporate and melt away. You begin to realize that you were never in control. You didn't have the best plan for yourself. But the shepherd cares about you. He's in charge. He knows what you're going through right now. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows the wrestlings in your soul. He knows the agonies. He knows the feeling of despising aspects of what you've done or who you are. He knows the desire to to grow and the frustration with yourself. And he invites you to come and recognize, I'm your shepherd. I love you more than you love yourself. And we love ourselves quite a lot, don't we? We praise because of the way it changes our hearts. And it reminds us, this idea of God as our shepherd and the centrality of, for David, what, that that is an aspect of worshipping, of praising him. I was reading about um, how shepherds, they, one way that they can mark their sheep and mark them out as their own is that they would put a notch in their ears. They take a knife, a sharp knife, and cut their ears in a particular way that is, uh, is a kind of signature cut. And you know, in the Old Testament, there was a picture for when somebody became a slave and decided voluntarily to bind themselves to a master for life, they would take an awl, a sharp spike, put their ear against the door, and then drive the spike through their ear. It's horrendous, isn't it? <laughs> now, the reason why I'm, I'm saying that to you is because I want you to understand, friends, that this first strand, this element of praise, this element of worship of this shepherd is also an acknowledgement of his ownership of you. Paul constantly talks about himself, not only with the language of sonship, which is what we've been singing, but also with the language of slavery in the New Testament. I'm a slave of Christ, he keeps saying. Which means that your whole life is called into absolute dedication to him. When you think about this year to come, Has it been your primary concern to meditate on and pray through how you might devote yourself to Jesus in more passionate slavery to his goodwill and pleasure for you? This pilgrim psalm leads us to that first thing, that we're called to praise him. Here's the second thing. It leads us to this truth about God's passionate commitment to our provision and our restoration and our rest, and our recovery, and the revival of our spirits. He goes on. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So also in in the Lord's Prayer, he goes on and prays, Give us our daily bread, which of course has to do with our physical nourishment, but also is to do with our experience of the grace of God in day-to-day life his refreshing, his strengthening, his nourishment to our souls. Now, here's one thing I discovered about sheep this week. Sheep are, um, they're very sort of restless animals, and 
I was reading this book by a guy who was a pastor, but before that he was a shepherd. And um, he, he had some fascinating insights into the shepherd life. But one thing he tells us about sheep is that they are, as restless animals, they very rarely lie down. He says four conditions have to be in place for a sheep to feel relaxed enough to lie down. As some of you probably recognize it's true of you as well, that you're kind of always busying around and doing stuff and you never feel at rest, which, of course, is not true of my wife. She can lie down in any <laughs> circumstance and feel chilled out. Um, now, he says four things about them. He says, because of their timidity, they don't lie down unless they're free of all fear. So, all threat has to be removed, he says. He says, because of their social behavior within the flock, he says there's a pecking order from the top to the bottom, all the way down in order, that who gets to eat in which patches of the field and stuff. He says, because of their social behavior, they don't lie down until they're free of friction with others of their kind. So there has to be peace in the, in, the, in the community, as it were. He says, they don't lie down if they're tormented. He, he described in detail these flies that lay their eggs in the nose of the sheep, and then those eggs turn into larvae and, and create abscesses in the heads of the sheep. And, you know, it's disgusting. And he said the shepherd has to be very attentive to these things. He has to watch out for parasites. He has to know how to treat and take care of his sheep. And then he says, fourthly, sheep don't lie down as long as they're in need of finding food. If they're hungry, they stay on the move. But he said, as a shepherd, it was his job to make sure that all these conditions were dealt with. That his sheep felt no fear, that they were, he said, that his presence in the field made a difference in terms of their social rivalry. That they were free from the attacks of these parasites and worms and all kinds of things. And that they had all the food they need. Now David, we know, was a passionate, sensitive, caring man. And his picture of a shepherd, therefore, is of this dedication, this absolute passionate concern for his sheep. Not the kind of shepherd who lets them kind of get scorny and hungry and waste away, but the one who cares about their nourishment and their well-being and their good. And so, friends, when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me lie down. He's saying that regardless of your experiences, God's intention for you is that you experience soul rest in him. You experience deep refreshment in him. Now you might wonder, are we talking here about special periodic times in the Christian life that come now and then, or are we talking about the daily experience of Christians? And I think, actually, you don't have to choose. There are times in the Christian life when you go through particular seasons of strength and anxiety and fear and friction and, and attack and all these kinds of things, and you feel that desperate need to find green meadows, spiritually speaking, to lie down and be refreshed in your soul. If that's you, I want to encourage you, please don't look elsewhere for that refreshment. Find it in God. You'll be tempted to look elsewhere when you think God's abandoned you. You'll be tempted to try and feed your soul on all kinds of rubbish to feel happier when you think that God's not answering your prayers or that He is not, that you're dealing with your fears, your anxieties. David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But I also think that this is meant to be the daily experience of Christians. It's there in that Lord's Prayer Give us our daily bread. I think one of the most powerful pictures of this in the Bible is in that, or the Old Testament story of the, of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Do you remember how God provided manna every morning? This kind of seed-like substance that they could make into loaves and things. And, and uh, it, I don't know what it was, but they found it on the ground every day and they ate it. And one of, one of the things God stipulated about this manna was that he wouldn't allow it to last more than a day. If they kept... More than you needed, like the Christmas turkey, it was going to go off. It would go rancid and stinking and make you ill. So he said, you only gather as much as you need for that day. You can read about it in Exodus 16. 
with the exception of Friday when you gather twice as much so you have enough for the Sabbath. So obviously it wasn't a property inherent in the manor itself that it had to go off after a day. It was God's intention to teach the Israelites something. To teach them something about what it means to depend on him every single day. To wake up not knowing if you're going to have your meals, but trusting the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And friends, I think it's one of the most important things about the Christian life is that you learn to experience daily rest. We, we, we say lots of the things are important about the Christian life, whether it's being on mission with Jesus, whether it's uh, giving to your church and serving your church and reading your Bible and all kinds of things. But this seems to me a more fundamental issue. That as Christians, something that should be true of you is that your soul is at rest. It preaches to the world about the goodness of the God you serve. This is the rest that we're invited into when Hebrews 4 talks about what it means to become a Christian is to enter his rest. It's the rest that God's been enjoying since the creation of the world. God is not fretful or anxious. He is a God who is at peace and at rest. And despite everything that might be swirling around your life right now, and some, I know some of you are going through intensely difficult times, God invites you to his green pastures. How does he bless us? Sometimes it's through very physical means. I love that story in 1 Kings 19. This is after Elijah's had this profound conflict with the prophets of Baal. The 400 prophets of Baal, and they, they did this little contest. Like, let's see whose God is real. They build these altars, and they say, the God who sends down fire to burn up the offering is the real God. And they, they do all these incantations all day long, and Baal does nothing because he's not real. And then God pours down fire upon Elijah's offering. And Elijah kills all these prophets and disposes of these false idol, idol worshippers and then he flees into the desert because Jezebel's after him. She wants to kill him. And after this spiritual high, he crashes and burns into this absolute dejection and depression in 1 Kings 19 where he's like, my life is nothing, and he wants to die, and he feels absolutely, totally, you know that feeling of total despair that sometimes just hits you from side left or follows something wonderful. I don't know if that's only ever happened to me. You guys are looking so blank. (laughs) One of the things that happens is he's visited by an angel, and the angel bakes him a cake. Now this is, I'm really just adding this as a subtle hint to my wife, but (laughs) he bakes him a cake on some hot rocks and Elijah experiences soul nourishment. It's a very tangible way that he feels the goodness of God towards him. And the words of God come to him as well. You're not the only one left. And, you know, all these kinds of things. Friends, God can touch you in, in these kind of physical ways, but he also wants you to experience the kind of unmediated encounter of his, his presence in your life, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as believers in Christ, hasn't he? Without measure, to overflowing. Jesus spoke of rivers of living water coming out of us. We're meant to experience God's presence in, in a daily way, in a real way. And that fellowship with Jesus that nourishes our soul. So jo- Jesus spoke about himself as the bread of life. We're called to feed on him. He's the green pastures. He spoke about entering his rest. He said in Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. If you feel burdened down, he says, and I'll give you rest. He described his easy yoke. And so here's my encouragement to you. As you enter this year, you may have all kinds of... um, high ideals and goals that you're aiming towards. I don't know what's going on, but know that God's intention for you is to grow deeper in experience of his rest from day to day. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul puts it like this. He says, though our outer self is wasting away. So in other words, our physical life is getting worse and worse. Harder, 
It's getting more difficult day after day to live. But he says our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our experience of joy, of rest, of peace in God is increasing day after day. That's the pilgrim life that David's talking about here. It's a life of praise. It's a life of provision and restoration and rest. Here's the third thing. This life is a life of holiness. He goes on. He says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's also in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, forgive us our sins. He says, lead us not into temptation. This is our third strand. Sheep are famed for wandering, aren't they? And it's that picture in Isaiah 53 that wandering is is the, the essence of rebellion. When we take our eyes off the shepherd and think we know best, basically, we think, oh, that grass looks amazing. I'm going over there. And we, we go off in our own direction. The sheep are famed for this, that without the presence and the guidance of the shepherd and their attentiveness to him, they get lost and they find themselves in danger. Sheep go wrong, basically, when they stop following the shepherd, which, to use New Testament language, means that you, you're not being a disciple. To be a disciple is to be a follower, isn't it? To be learning, growing understanding, deepening your understanding of Jesus' ways and walking with him, thinking, Lord, how can I walk in your step as closely as possible? How can I follow you, Jesus? How can I shed my own will and ambitions for myself and recognize that your will is better, that obedience is better? So here's my question then. When you think about this coming year, what do you think is God's greatest ambition for you? I'm sure you have ambitions for yourself. Do you think God's greatest ambition for you is that you are going to get more fit? Honestly. Do you think that's his top ambition? He may actually, God God wills us to take care of our bodies, but do you think that's his number one concern for you, is that you follow through on that gym membership? Serious. Do you think? Because sometimes we make these things like they are number one, don't we? Do you think that his number one concern for you and ambition for you is that you, you make that next step in your career progress? Maybe that's been your goal that you've set out for yourself this year. You think, I'm gonna ma- my goal for 2017 is to find a new job or to get that promotion. Do you think his, his number one desire for you is that? Do you think his number one desire for you is that you find the spouse that you've been looking for? Maybe you've set that as a goal for 2017. I've no idea how you're going to achieve that. Good luck to you. But maybe you have. Maybe that's your top prayer, your top hope, your top ambition. I don't know. Just think about what are the things that you think, this is what I want for this year. And then ask yourself, do you think that's God's main desire and ambition for your life in this coming year? Some of you maybe have slightly more pious goals. You think, my goal coming into 2017 is to read the whole Bible this year. And you've made it up to day eight so far. Well done. <laughs> on your Bible reading plan or to pray more. And I don't want to belittle the importance of these things. They are absolutely crucial, central, essential. You can't experience the green pastures of God's feeding your soul without nourishing yourself through what people describe as the means of grace, the channels of grace, God's word and experiencing fellowship with him through prayer. But do you think that God's top goal for you is that you complete your Bible reading plan or that you um, that talk to him more? I think they're important, but I actually think when you look at what the New Testament describes as God's number one desire for us is that we grow in holiness. Where do I get that from? Well, all over the New Testament, actually. But one of the places would be in Romans 8, where Paul, he says this. He says, those whom God foreknew... He also predestined for what? So this is talking about the language of God choosing you to be part of his family, right? So then the question should be, why did God call me into his family? What did he want to do with me? What was his end goal, the telos, the kind of, you know, when 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 you choose to do something, usually you have an end goal that's guiding those choices, right? So what was God's end goal when he said, I'm going to call such and such a guy into my family to be my child? He says, to be conformed to the image of his son. 
in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says that we all, with unveiled face, so those who have experienced what it means to know God face to face, beholding the glory of the Lord, he says, are being transformed into the same image, the glory of the Lord, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, you know, everything else in your year could go to pot. You might become less fit than you were in 2016. You may get a demotion or get fired. You may feel that a number of your goals just dissolve into nothing. But God's desire for you was always that you become more like Jesus. That you grow in holiness. Now just thinking back then to this Psalm 23. You lead me in paths of righteousness. What are the biggest threats to your growth in holiness this year? One of them we've already mentioned is this danger of sheep to get lost. You know, to wander away. It happens when you consciously and willfully disobey Jesus. It's a step away from him, isn't it? It happens when you fall out of fellowship with his people and stop that regular, consistent gathering with his people. I mean, you can be here and not walking with God as well, but it's almost inevitable that when you stop, you'll, you'll drift, you get lost. There's many ways in which we can get lost. And maybe that's been your, your experience right now. Maybe you've come into this place thinking, I, feel, I actually feel lost. I feel like I need to come back to the shepherd. I feel like I've been wandering down these weird pathways and I have no idea where I am. My life has lost its central meaning and purpose. It's an invitation, friend, to come back. But there's also, again, in my, in my, uh, in my studying about sheep, I learned something else. I learned that actually one of the, the, more, the greatest dangers to, to, to the life of a sheep is that they roll over. So... This guy, Philip Keller, was describing how a sheep, he'd often have to listen out for sheep bleating in the night, and in the morning he'd look out for buzzards circling over the field, because he said it would be a sign that there might be a sheep that's on its back. And when sheep get on the back, they wiggle their legs until all the blood flow stops to their legs and they can't use them anymore, and they get stuck, they get stranded like a beetle. And he said, the the three reasons why sheep seem to get stuck in this way is one is that they love comfort. So when they're in the field, they find a nice little hole. They just lie on the edge of the hole. and (laughs) They fall on their back and their legs go up and they're stuck in the hole. He said they also, because their wool grows, and if the shepherd, you know, if they haven't been sheared and the wool is just too big and too much, they've got this massive blanket around them. He said also if they just get too fat. So you've got to keep the balance right between scrawny and fat. And if they get too fat, too kind of immobile, then that sheep is going to just roll over. <laughs> it's so round, and its legs will be up in the air, and it's going to be absolutely stranded. I thought in there is such a, a, a powerful picture, actually, of what is the, some of the greatest threats to our holiness in the Christian life. There is the more explicit way in which you wander, right? Which I think we're all conscious when we do that. And I, don't want to, I, I, I want you to be aware, if that's you, you must come back to the shepherd of your soul. But maybe a more subtle threat for the Christian is just that you get a little bit too fat. And we, I'm not talking about your New Year's resolutions and fitness and all that stuff. I mean, spiritually speaking, too inactive, too woolly, and too much desire and comfort. And God, as the good shepherd of your soul, will sometimes have to intervene in that situation. Give you a shave, put you on a diet, make you active. Because his desire for you in holiness is, remember, this is a a journey picture. He leads me on paths of righteousness. Holiness grows when we are in active obedience to Jesus rather than passively doing very little and sitting back. Holiness grows when day after day we're choosing to obey him in in new ways and in, in deeper obedience to his call, what it means to be the Christian, what it means to be a disciple. I don't want to get confused here with self-improvement. It's always the power of the Spirit changing you from one degree of glory to another as we gaze upon the sun. But friend, if you become a little bit too relaxed 
in your Christian life in a way that you have just grown into kind of laziness and passivity, God might want to stir something up, reinvigorate your passion for him, your obedience to him, your desire to live for him. That's our third thing, holiness. Now here's the fourth great theme of this pilgrim life. It has to do with the fact that at some point we're going to be facing difficult seasons. And he talks about suffering and fear and danger in this next section. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, but deliver us from evil. Why is the valley, this valley of death, such a dangerous place for a Christian? And just to be more explicit, what I'm talking about is those seasons when you go through hardship, suffering, experiences you would not choose for yourself when you feel like you're going through dark patches. Why are they so dangerous to your soul? The answer is not because of what can happen to you at such times. We're often afraid of the things that can happen to us, to our health, to our well-being, to our prosperity. And Jesus actually has very little uh, anxiety about, he says, the things that can happen to you. He says, don't fear the one who can kill your body. The greater danger in the Christian life when you're going through the valley, and maybe, I suspect some of, I know some of us are going through it right now, is what can happen in you, what happens in your soul in, in those dark patches. I think there's, there's two particular dangers which this psalm highlights. One is the danger of doubt when you can't see the way. And he talks about it as the valley of the shadow of death. So much in the Bible is about, associates evil with darkness, doesn't it? And the problem with being in the shadows is that the things that you were so sure about in the daytime, suddenly they become less clear to you when you're in, in suffering. And you can begin to ask the very fundamental questions. Is God even there? Does he listen? Does he care? When people fall on the wrong side of those doubts, that's when they lose their faith. That's when people walk away from the church. We're talking about something of absolute importance here. It's not trivial matters. You can look around at faces here and see people looking glowing and smiling and a little bit plumper than they were in December and not know what's going on in their spirit, the torment of doubt that can be tearing people apart when they feel like God's goodness is not tangible to me right now. So the danger is not what happens to you, it's what happens in you. And one of those dangers is the danger of doubt. Another one is of fear. David says with conviction, I will fear no evil. But he has to say that because the danger when you are experiencing suffering and and go through a dark time, and many, you all will at some point in this year, is that you will be afraid. And fear and love and fear and faith are kind of opposites. That when you give way to fear, it's very hard to experience the love of God, his favor towards you. It's very hard to trust him in faith, isn't it? That's why this is one of the most dangerous things. It can give way to a kind of paralyzing dread and inactivity and wandering. But the Christian, like David, is someone who, though he may not be able to see right now, because he's in the valley of the shadow, and though he may feel this rising sense of dread and fear, he knows that the shepherd is there. He knows his presence. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Sometimes that's not something that as a Christian you feel. But it's something you must know and that you must appropriate by faith. It's something you hold on to. You say, I I feel this way right now, but God's word says this. 
and I'm holding on to the word because right now, if I don't hold on to that, I'm at sea, I'm adrift. And I'll be tossed every which way by the waves. So I cling to the anchor and I say, your word is true. And since you promised you were always with us, I know you're with me right now, God. The shepherd's presence is powerful because shepherds are violent comforters. What do I mean? Shepherds have to be happy with holding together those two different elements of character or personality. That they are, at times, violent men. And at times, comforting men like a mother with her child. And those two things are not contradictory. In fact, they are two things that are true of God and his character. If you only think about God as someone who is violent, then you think about a God who is full of hatred and loathing and austere holiness that is separated from us without any possibility of approach. If you only think about God as, as comforter, then you, you, think about, you picture him as this benevolent, benign grandfather who, 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 who overlooks everything and has no concern for our godliness or our holiness or the way we live. But God, just like a shepherd, is a violent comforter. Now shepherds, the reason why I'm saying this is because shepherds were men who were called upon to protect their sheep violently, to deal with dangers. That's why he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was a short, blunt instrument. A shepherd, shepherds in Africa, this is... Keller's experience, again, Philip Keller's experience when he was a young man in Africa, he said they would go, these new shepherds would go out and choose a sapling, and they cut the sapling and then shape it into a rod, a, a stick for beating. It's because of the wild animals that were a threat to the sheep. He tells one story of how one day they needed to move a large rock, and he and this, other, this, this young shepherd boy, this African shepherd boy, and as they pushed this boulder, a cobra came out from under it, and reared up its head ready to strike. And he said, quick as a flash, the shepherd boy threw his rod at the cobra and, and killed it. Or maybe he beat it. I don't know. It would be quite a good aim, wouldn't it, if you threw it? <laughs> but he said all the time that they were moving the boulder, the rod hadn't left his hand. He was always attentive. But then he goes on to talk about the staff, the shepherd's crook, and how it's an instrument of comfort to the sheep. He said how when a ewe gives birth to a lamb, so that the lamb doesn't get neglected or, 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 or abandoned by the ewe, he, the shepherd won't touch it with his hands. What he'll do is pick it up with his crook gently and just lay it at, at the teats of the mother so that she, it can feed there. And how when the sheep are walking, sometimes a shepherd would just lay his, his staff on gently on the back of a sheep to guide it or direct it, and sometimes just to reassure the sheep of his presence. I think it's one of the greatest needs of the church in, in this century and in, in the Western world is to recover both of these views in, in equal tension. That God is our comforter, that he is gentle, that his will towards us is good, but that he is also violent in dealing with our enemies and violent in dealing with um, things that threaten his church. When you go through the valley... It's the presence of such a shepherd that you need. Here's the last thing. The psalm, this pilgrim psalm, rounds off with this steadfast conviction of salvation and victory. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or as the Lord's Prayer puts it, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to ask you that when you think about the future, the immediate future in this year to come, are you basically an optimist or a pessimist? A lot of people seem to have given way to pessimism, granted how terrible 2016 was. So many... Celebrity deaths, so many strange elections, 
And uh, a lot of people said, is that the worst year ever? Well, clearly not, but, you know, <laughs> this is how melodramatic we've become. And uh, so going into 2017, I want to ask you, are you someone who expects good things coming into this year? Now, when you, some of us are basically wired to be a little bit more optimistic about life and about the future. But I'm not just talking about a personality trait where you're just a little bit more of a sanguine, sunny person. And I'm not talking about optimism that comes from, you know, your conviction about the betterment of mankind, how technology is developing, all these things. I'm talking about godly optimism here. Because it's my conviction that the Christian should be someone who expects good things. Now we know, I don't mean exclusively good experiences. We've already talked about the valley. But we even know in the valley that God always intends these things for our good. So a running theme throughout the scriptures is that somebody who's walking close with God has a joyful expectation of the ways that God is going to work in the future and in, in the years to come. I love that picture in Proverbs 31 where the writer's describing the godly wife. And that phrase of her, it says, she laughs at the things to come. She's not fretfully anxious and pessimistic about their future. She laughs at the things to come. She's so happy just to be experiencing life. I love that passage in Romans 8 where Paul just says that we know that God is for us. And he keeps reiterating that God is for us and who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from his love. So here's how I want us to just end and what I want us to meditate on as we go into communion and worship. Is your, is your heart preoccupied by a joyful expectation of this year to come and of what God wants to do in you? If you're not full of optimistic joy, it, it may be possible, first of all, that you are not, you don't know God as your shepherd in the first place. So you couldn't say of yourself that he's going to prepare a table before you, that you're, you're going to experience his oil and wine of gladness. And if you know that your, your life is not marked by obedience to and following and dedication to the shepherd, that you don't belong to him, that he hasn't notched your ear and that you're not part of his family, then I think that's the root of your problem. And you can know a deeper joy than ever when you experience what it means to belong to God, what it means to call him your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. But if you're a Christian and you're experiencing this lack of joy in the Christian life, I want you just to think about this in terms of past, present, and future, which is how David puts it. In a present sense, he says, you're, you're seated and anointed. He says, you, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, this is the kind of picture that the New Testament picks up on when it says that we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. Regardless of whether you think your life is going particularly well in the here and now, the most true thing about you is that you, you have more riches than you could ever possibly imagine. Think about it in terms of the past. He says, surely in goodness and mercy will follow me. And the Christian's experience has been God's goodness and his mercy. The things that you've been afraid of in the past, how many of them just came to nothing, right? Hasn't God's goodness and his mercy been with you to this point? Hasn't he always shown you mercy for your foolishness and your stupidity and the ways you've gone wrong? Don't you think that he will continue to do that? Hasn't he been good to you in untold ways? Think about your future. I will dwell, he says, in the house of the Lord forever. In a sense, nothing else matters. You can have the worst year on record. This would still be true. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want us to pray. My hope, my heart, my desire is that God is recalibrating us in the way we think about what matters. Where we think about the future, where we think about our goals, where we think about what's important in this year to come. A life lived 
in devotion to, with your eyes fixed upon the shepherd, is a fulfilled, peaceful, joyful life. It's Jesus inviting you back to himself as the good shepherd. Does he want you to kill those selfish desires and ambitions and fears? Does he want you to repent of them? Come confess them to him now. Does he want you to lay your fears before him? The dread, the valley. Does he want you to come experience rest in him? Can we pray these things into our hearts right now? And then we'll stand together and have communion as we worship. And seek that God will seal it in our hearts as we enjoy the, the bread and the wine. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you spoke of yourself as the shepherd. And Lord, I don't think that you meant to just insult us by calling us sheep, because you do love us, I know that, but I'd be the first to hold my hand up and say that I am not, I'm not the smartest person. <laughs> I do stupid things. So how easily, Lord, my eyes get distracted off you. Lord, I just know that so many of us feel that way. How easily we're seduced by green pastures elsewhere. How easily, Lord, we give way to fear and dread. And Lord Jesus, we want to enthrone you in 2017. We want to commit to a life of discipleship, of growing in holiness. We want to experience your daily rest, Lord. Lord, I pray that as individuals here are being shaken and provoked to reconsider what their life is about and what they count as important, I pray, Lord, that you will do something very significant in our hearts today to realign us, to reshape the direction of our pilgrimage in this coming year and to bring it, to tether us to yourself. To help us to die to all the fears and ambitions that are actually planted by Satan and by the flesh. And Lord, instead, to measure our lives by your love for us, your commitment to us, and by what really matters in your kingdom. Thank you that you call us to be your own long before we ever choose to follow you. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.